1 Samuel chapter 9. We saw last week that Israel is done with their cycles of instability, and what they see as the problem is they need a king. They don't have a king. That's why we have such instability in our nation. And so they demand that Samuel give them a king, and God will give them one. But the king will be his choice, and it will be in his timing. So uh, God sends the tribal leaders home. (laughs) But in this chapter, we're going to meet God's choice for king. And we'll see in this chapter a couple things. One, that God knew that they would reject Samuel's warning about a king, you know, the reality check about a king. And, And God already had a plan in place. And then number two, that things will start off well for the man that God chooses because he has a humble heart. This will be a kind of a multiple study. We'll look at the, the humble heart that Saul started with over the next few Sunday nights, um, but we'll start it tonight. So chapter 9, and we'll begin in verse 1. Now, there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, and the son, who was the son of Zeror, the son of Bechroth, the son of Aphia, a Benjamite, a mighty man of power. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a choice young man and a goodly. And there was not among the children of Israel a goodlier person than he. From his shoulders and upward, he was higher than any other people. And the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to Saul, his son, take now one of the servants with you and arise and go seek the donkeys. So here we meet Saul and his family, and we start off with his father. It says, now there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish. Now, Benjamin, remember, that's the tribe that was almost wiped out in the book of Judges. Remember the civil war that was fought where the 11 other tribes fought against Benjamin, got whooped twice, and then they beat him the third time and almost wiped out the tribe of Benjamin. Kish is from that tribe. He was the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Bechorath, the son of Aphia. These names are not uh, known to us. They will be mentioned here and then dropped off. It's important, though, just to understand he's a Benjamite. It also mentions here that he was a mighty man of power. It's the same word that was used to describe Boaz. It means that he was an elite soldier. He was a war hero and a well-respected man in his tribe. Um, It almost always also means someone who was wealthy as well. So uh, this is Saul's family. Um, His father is a well-respected man, a war hero, and very likely comes from a pretty well-to-do family. Verse 2, we meet Saul. And he, Kish, had a son whose name was Saul, a choice young man and a goodly. I like that the King James says that. Uh, a choice man, young man, means he stood out. He was stood out amongst the other young men. Uh, when you think of young man, I, I don't usually think of myself. I think of people much younger than me. However, Saul was likely in his late 30s, early 40s at this time. And the reason it calls him a young man is because it's very young for leadership. Uh, the society back then was one where the oldest male was you know, kind of in in charge. And so for um, a a man in his late 30s or early 40s to be king was considered a young guy. So I don't feel so bad. It mentions he was also a goodly, (laughs) which basically means he was a handsome dude. He was a beautiful man is what it means. And it explains what that meant, that he, from his shoulders, um, and upward, he was higher than any of the people. There was not in Israel a goodly person to him, and explains why. From his shoulders and upward, he was higher than any of the people. Saul literally stood head and shoulders above everyone else. No one in Israel, there was no one in Israel could match that, his physical um, appearance. 
Now, when you describe Saul this way, this is exactly what Israel's looking for in a king, someone with a grand appearance to lead them into prosperity and stability, someone with the DNA to pass on those qualities to their descendants so the nation would be stable for centuries to come. I mean, he fits the bill for what they're looking for. Now, these attributes don't necessarily define the type of person that the Lord wants, of course, because You know, the Lord's looking for things that are more inward, not necessarily these outward attributes. But the Lord is going to give Israel what they want. Because while Saul will have a wonderful and and humble uh, beginning to his reign, and, and that made him a decent candidate for a leader, God had something he wanted to teach the nation. And we know, of course, Saul didn't stay humble as he did in the beginning, but eventually he let all these things go to his head. So, knowing all this, then why did God choose Saul to be Israel's first king? Well, I mentioned it was to teach Israel a couple important lessons. Number one, I think the Lord was trying to teach Israel that what society values doesn't equate necessarily to what God values. I'm not saying it doesn't always, but just the things that society values does not necessarily equate to what God values. So, the lesson is that we must be very careful when we evaluate things. For example, one of the things, I don't know if I still hear it anymore, but I used to frequently hear it uh, when it was very popular for when athletes got saved or, you know, um, celebrities, you know, actors or actresses got saved and, you know, they would all of a sudden be thrust into the limelight. They had become speakers or, you know, they, they, they were always invited places and, and, you know, to give their testimony and stuff, which is fine. But, you know, the thing I would hear people say is frequently with some of these individuals in society before they got saved, they would say, man, if that person ever got saved, they could really be used by God. And I think that that is an incorrect assessment because it's the idea that the qualities that tend to be admired and looked up to in our culture, you know, are qualities necessarily that God goes, wow, I can really use that person. I, I don't think that's always true. And I think very frequently we can find that those two things will be at odds. Um, oftentimes what society values is not what God values. So I think that God, the Lord was trying to teach Israel that what they had valued and what they were looking for is not necessarily what, what qualifies someone in God's eyes. And then secondly, I think the Lord was also trying to teach them to look at character regardless of external appearances. Character, how do I explain this? I, I'll tell you how I explain this. When I, when I was a very young pastor, when I was a wee lad, pastor, um, you know, you, you're starting out and, and you don't have much, right? I mean, you're, we started out as a Bible study in our, our, our studio apartment, okay? And so we had, you know, anywhere from, you know, five to, you know, 12 people that were coming. And, and these folks were saying, hey, you know, this is we, we look at you as our pastor. We want to ha- start having Sunday services. We want to start a church. And that's what was on our hearts anyway to do. Me and Beverly, we felt God called us to plant the church. And so, you know, we did that. And, 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 and so, but to do that, it requires help. <laughs> it requires things. What, what happens when someone shows up with a kid? You know, what happens when, you know, you, you've got a, a ministry that, that, that you're, you're not meeting at that point in time? You need help. And, and so, unfortunately, you, you can very easily get into this mindset where you start looking at people that come in and go, well, where might they fit? And, and how, what role might they play? 
And, and, and I started to do that. And so when someone came in that like had any inkling of ministry at all, I used to start thinking, all right, start pouring into them, you know, start pouring into them so they can, you know, you know, be raised up and they can serve or whatever. And, you know, I had all those warnings about being careful about raising people up. And so I didn't move anyone into leadership quickly by any means. However, the problem was I was frequently disappointed. One, because I had a wrong attitude, those were people that Jesus loved, not tools for my toolbox and for my, my whatever I was doing. And then number two, because many of the things that I looked at that I thought were admirable um, were not necessarily qualities that would be useful for the people we were trying to serve. Maybe they were a gifted speaker or they, you know, could handle the word well or, you know, people liked them or they were charismatic or all the various things you can, you can imagine might be good in, for a certain leadership position. Uh, unfortunately, we're oftentimes coupled with unfaithfulness and unreliability and, you know, unpredictability and, and, uh, and, and marriage problems and, and all these other things that are very bad negatives if you're going to give someone responsibility. And so, as a result, you know, I, I learned really quickly that there were things that oftentimes may not be externally seen, but could be tested over time to be of much more value than any of the things I had previously valued. Um, when people, you know, come to me and, and they, they have a heart, you know, say, hey, you know, I've, I've done this and this and this in the past, and, you know, I have a heart to do these things. And one of the first things I tell them, I say, well, get to know people. I said, I want it to make sense when, if we put you in charge of something, you know, I don't want it to be out of the blue because if it comes out of the blue, the only thing I've got is, well, they're good at this. Well, truth is, even if you're good at something, there's probably about 800 people out there are doing it way better than you. Truth. I'm not going to keep anybody here because I'm a good teacher. You know, but if I'm a, someone who invests in lives that can be trusted, that can be relied upon, that can be counted upon, you know, those are things that, that people really need. Not that they don't need good teaching, but there's lots of good teachers out there. There's lots of people with the gift of teaching out there. But looking for things that are more important are not necessarily talents, but they are character, you know, heart. I, one of the things I tell people, I say, well, I'd like to get to know you better, you know, I'd like to know what your family's like. I'd like to know what, what you do on a daily basis. I'd like to know what your life looks like. I'd like to find out what makes you tick. You know, I'd like to make sure that you're, you know, not a closet whatever. <laughs> and that, you know, that, that there are things that are important to you that shouldn't be that important to you. So I think the Lord is trying to teach them to look at character um, regardless of external appearances. Now, that's enough on that spiel. Saul's story begins with a family crisis, a serious one. The donkeys are lost. I know it doesn't sound like an exciting start to the king of Israel's beginnings, but God frequently, at least I found, frequently uses mundane things to set up divine appointments. And so, verse 3, the donkeys of Kish's, Saul's father, were lost. It means they had wandered off. And so, Kish said to Saul, his son, take now one of the servants with you and arise and go seek the donkeys. So, probably a little bit harsh, and this is why I think we get the idea that Saul's like a, a younger guy. Um, the word phrase there, take now, it means please take, please do this for me, son. Uh, Middle Eastern families, uh, even to this day, they defer to the oldest male in the family. So, Saul 
at this point in time, has a grown child. Jonathan's a grown man at this point. Um, and yet, his father's wishes still carried the most weight in the family. And so if, if Kish asks his son to go find the donkeys, it was the norm for his son to go find the donkeys. So Saul does. Verse 4, so he passed through Mount Ephraim and passed through the land of Shalisha, uh, but they did not find them. These are locations that are north of Saul's home in uh, the tribe of Benjamin. Uh, so then they passed through the land of Shalim. Uh, these are locations that are to the west of Saul's home. And there they were not either. And so he passed through the land of the Benjamites. He looks all throughout the land of his tribe, uh, and he could not find them. So all of these areas are about 12 miles around where Saul lives. He's just kind of making a circuit uh, around. And in verse 5, when he finally gets to a place called Zuf, um, he says, I'm done looking. When they were come to the land of Zuth, verse 5, Saul said to his servant that was with him, come and let us return, lest my father leave caring for the donkeys, and he start taking thought for us. So Saul and his servant, they, they go as far as, as about 12, 12 miles in a radius around their home, which is quite the journey, uh, quite a few days' worth of journeys. And, and he decides to stop looking. He says, we need to go home. Dad's going to be more worried about me and you than he will be about the donkeys. Um, which again leads us to probably believe that, that Kish was a, a semi-wealthy man of some sorts. But the servant suggests a better solution, verse 6. And so he said to him, to Saul, he, the servant, behold, behold now, there is in this city a man of God, and he is an honorable man. All that he says comes surely to pass. So now let us go there, peradventure he can show us our way that we should go. Behold now means please consider this. Uh, maybe he's the servant who lost track of the donkeys. And so he, uh, he has personal investment in making sure they find him. I don't know. But he said, you know, listen, let's, can we try one other thing? There is in this city, wherever Zuf is, I'm not sure exactly where it is, but wherever there is, there's a city there nearby, uh, a man of God. Um, and he says he's an honorable man because back then when you said there's a man of God over there, people would roll their eyes. Uh, men of God were not looked at in high esteem due to the Levites' corruption, Saul, uh, the, uh, the judge's corruption, Samuel's own son's corruption during this time. So the servant has to clarify, no, 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 he's, he's a man of God who's also an honorable man, which means held in high esteem. Um, that Samuel isn't actually named here, that he doesn't say, oh, it's Samuel. Um, it, it shows that Saul's family was not very active in the nation's politics. Um, his family was not an influential or important family in that sense, uh, because Samuel was well-known everywhere and by everyone, and so if they were familiar with that, they would have just said it's, he would have just said it's Samuel. Instead, he describes what Samuel's reputation is. He says, all that he says comes surely to pass. This guy's the real deal. He's not a phony. God actually speaks to him. Now, peradventure, he can show us our way that we should go. If we go to him and he can ask the Lord, the Lord can tell us, and then we can go find the donkeys. Now, this was how Samuel got his reputation when he was a young, a young man, way back in 1 Samuel 3.19, remember? He was the only one that God was speaking to. I mean, maybe a few other people, but the word of God, it says, was, there was like a famine of it back then. And so, but the Lord was speaking to Samuel, and so he got this reputation, 1 Samuel 3.19 says that, hey, everything he says comes to pass. So the, we know the Lord speaks to him. So the servant says, let's, let's just try that. Now, I think this is interesting because it, it gives us a little bit of insight into who Saul is as an individual, right? We're going to see this all throughout his life. But Saul's thought was, I've just traveled around 12 miles and I didn't find the donkeys. Let's go home. And the servant's going, well, what about this idea? 
See, Saul is kind of a hammer kind of guy. For example, if he sees a nail, he hits it, right? He's a hammer kind of guy. Now, that's wonderful if your problem is a nail. But there's a little creativity, a little creativity in that kind of problem solving, you know? I mean, if, it's, if you're just a hammer and, and you're looking to hit things, not every problem needs to be hit by a hammer. And this will become a problem in his leadership style once Saul is king. He has little imagination and little faith to see God moving outside of how he perceives things are. And so even now, he doesn't see how this plan will work. Look at his response in verse 7. Then said Saul to his servant, but... Behold, if we go, what shall we bring the man? For the bread is spent in our vessels, and there's not a present to bring to the man of God. What do we have? Um, in other words, we don't have any extra supplies. We've already used up all the supplies we have. We don't have enough to get home. And so what kind of a present, in other words, what kind of a token of honor, what kind of a customary gift can we give to the man, you know, so he can tell us what to do? You know, what do we have? So, Again, for him, he only kind of sees one way. And, and it, it's always easier to make excuses and step out in faith. Always. Um, my nature is to not step out in faith. My nature is to find the excuses, you know, and, and then if, if you keep giving me ideas to pound you, your dumb ideas into submission, so you leave me alone. I don't, I'm not creative in, in, in those types of ideas. You know, I, I remember I've been in management outside of the church my whole work career. And, and, you know, I would always run into the people, God would frequently bring people who were the idea people. And, and I was that person who'd be like, okay, okay, this is the only way we can do it. And they'd be like, Ooh, what about this? What about this? And I'd just be like, you know, that's, I'm not like that. So I understand Saul's mentality. But being a Christian, it's really hard if, if that's, you're just gonna have tunnel vision like that. Because there's an arrogance to only seeing things through your lens. God is big and all-powerful, and, and, and I am limited. I'm small, not all-powerful. So it's important that we recognize that the Lord is calling us at times to step out in faith, not to make excuses for why we shouldn't. Because the truth is, if you look hard enough at any situation, you'll find an excuse why not to step out in faith. You always will. Now, that doesn't mean we should be unwise, you know, but a stop at a nearby town wasn't going to hurt them, even if it didn't yield the desired results. Once again, the servant has more imagination than Saul. Look at verse 8. And the servant answered Saul and said, Behold, I have here at hand the fourth part of a shekel of silver. That's what I will give to the man of God to tell us our way. Behold means, look what I found. You know, I have, which means I found. Look at what I found. He went looking at their supplies again. He knew that Saul was correct, but he thought, well, I'll go check again. Saul didn't even check. And he said, look what I found. I found a fourth part of a shekel. Now, a shekel um, was a weight used for business transactions. So the reason you, you carried shekels like this with you is so that if you were doing business deals and someone weighed out their shekel, you could put yours on there and make sure they didn't have a false weight. Um, that was a common thing back then where they'd be like, oh, that'll cost two shekels. And so, you know, worth of, worth of, worth of your grain for my wool. And so, you know, you'd put two shekels worth of weight of grain on the scale and, you know, they'd have ones that weighed like half a shekel, you know, or something like that. And so, or whatever, more than that. It's something where you would end up on the raw end of the deal. So oftentimes you would carry your own weight with you to make sure the guy was being honest with you. Coin currency wasn't used in history until about 300 years after 1 Samuel chapter 9. However, silver still had value. And so it might not have been much, but it was something they could give to the man of God. 
And so he says, I'll give that to him to tell us our way. Now, why is there so much holdup over giving the man of God a gift? Why couldn't they just go and ask Samuel? Why couldn't he just do that for them? Tradition. That's why. That's just how the way it always was. Verse 9. For before time in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, thus he spoke, come and let us go to the seer. For that is now called, for he that is now called a prophet was before time called a seer. Now, the word seer just means a person who speaks for God. So it means the same thing as prophet. But the name changed at the time the writer of 1 Samuel wrote this because Samuel established a school of prophets. They were the ones who spoke for God. Um, So that's why he explains, you know, that, for example, down in verse 10, then said Saul to his servant, well said, let us uh, go. So they went up to the city where the man was, and then, you know, they went up to the hill of the city, they found young maidens going out to draw water, and Saul said to them, is the seer here? See, the writer knows his readers are going to go, what's a seer? Because that was not a word they were familiar with. So he explains how it was. Back then they were called seers, and if you wanted to go to the seer, you had to bring a gift. So... Before we move on to the verses that I eventually read to there, we do need to stop to address this idea of pay to play. You know, the idea that you've got to pay the prophet to hear the word of the Lord. It strikes me as all too familiar to visiting a, a medium or a fortune teller, you know, doesn't it? Sadly, Israel equated those types of things with God speaking through prophets. Uh, this should not be. Uh, it should not be then, it uh, should not have been then, and it should not be today. In Matthew 10, verse 8, Jesus, when he was sending out the disciples, he said this. He said, heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons. I would imagine that those are uh, quite desirable effects, things to have. But then he says, freely you have received, freely give. I can tell you, if I had the, the ability to raise the dead whenever I wanted to, I could make a whole lot of money, a whole lot of money. But Jesus taught the exact opposite of that. Freely you have received, freely give. God is the one who gives wisdom and does the miraculous. It doesn't reside in his servants. It's not something that can just be called on any time we wish. You know, I always, okay, I'm going to rant a little bit, so just forgive me. I would always hear about these preachers who would say, you know, if you, you know, you ever, God wants everybody to be healed all the time, you know, and, 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 and if, we, you know, if we just have the faith to do it, then and no one would be sick. And, and then they, you know, oftentimes are these so-called faith healers. And I, I would always think to myself when I would hear these things, you must be the most selfish person in the whole wide world. Why would you leave anyone? Why aren't you in a hospital right now? Why are you there telling us this stuff? Why aren't you in a hospital? Why aren't you in a nursing home? Why aren't you going house to house seeing if anybody's sick? You know, because it's a sham. (laughs) Because that's not what the Bible teaches. We don't have this power in and of ourselves. In in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, I believe it's verse 7, it might be verse 9, but it says that the manifestation of the Spirit is is given to every man to profit withal as the Spirit sees fit. You know, I may have the gift of, of being a pastor, I may have the gift of teaching, but there's no one who just has the gift of healing or has the gift of miracles that they can just call it at will whenever they want. The Holy Spirit chooses who He wants to use that gift through when He wants to do it. That's, that's what the Scriptures teach. 
So don't ever listen to someone who tells you they're a healer or they're a this or they're a that because even if God may has, have used them often in that way, it's not something they can just call at will whenever they want. These things don't reside in us. Both wisdom and the miraculous, the supernatural wisdom that comes from God, the supernatural direction that maybe someone speaks into your life, the supernatural miracles that God does, that's not something that resides in his servants. And therefore, no minister should charge for counseling or prayer. I am, I am heartbroken and appalled. I am almost always asked when someone calls about counseling of some sort, and they say, how much do you charge? I, I just want, I, I, I'm heartbroken when someone asks that, that they would even think they would, that there'd be an obstacle somehow to them getting the Word of God. And then I'm angry afterwards, you know, I'm done. I think, you know, who, who taught them that? No minister should charge for counseling or prayer. While it's become the norm in churches these days, it should not be. You know, a minister who charged for his services, that was, when the early church started, that was one of the ways they taught you to recognize a false teacher. You can read it. It's called, something called the, the Didache or the Didache. People pronounce it differently. But it was a list of instructions to the early church. And it had a list of things, how to recognize if, it, if, it, if a guy comes to your church, if he's a false prophet, false teacher. First thing was, if he asks you to cook him dinner, if he asks you to give him dinner. But the second thing was, is if he asks for money. If he asks for money, don't listen to him, because we're servants. Jesus said, freely you have received, freely give. Now, I realize that while Matthew 10.8 says that, that Matthew 10.10 also says that the laborer is worthy of his hire. I recognize that. So it does say that those who are ministered to should be generous to care for the minister's needs. It says that. But that's different than charging, right? That's different. So it's not wrong for a minister to take a salary or to receive a special gift from those he's blessed. There's a balance there. But he should never charge. You see, the minister faithfully serves God's people whether he has hopes of being supported financially or not because that's what love does. It obeys God and it serves others whether something might be coming back or not. The people also should support the minister so he can do the work God's called him to do. But it should be out of their generosity, not because there's a charge for it. Ministry is not pay to play. It's a generous service, both from the minister and to those who are being served. And so if you're looking at ministry, at counseling, or at any kind of other outreach type of a, of a, of a way to a career, you know, if you're looking at those as a good paying career, then please pursue a different profession because that is the wrong mindset. No one should ever be denied spiritual help because they don't have the funds. No one. Verse 10. Saul doesn't have any excuse to that. He says, well, well said. You know, I love this because you can be a good leader even if you aren't very creative. You can. Just surround yourself with wise people who are very creative, Right? Good leaders don't have to have all the gifts or all the skill sets, you know? What makes them good leaders is they find people who have the things that, that can be helpful, and they surround themselves with them and empower them uh, to use their gifts as well. So Saul said to his servant, well said, let us go. 
So they went into the city where the man of God was, and as they were going up the hill to the city, they found young maidens going out to draw water, and, they, and, and he said unto them, Is the seer here? And they answered and said unto him, Oh, he is. Behold, he is gone. Before, oh, he is before you, which means he, he just headed inside. You just missed him. He is before you. Make haste now. You've got to hurry. For he came today to the city, but not just for any reason. For there is a sacrifice, the King James says. It probably just means feast. For there is a feast of the people today in the high place, in the worship center. And as soon as you become into the city, you shall straightway find him. doesn't mean you'll find him as soon as you come into the city. It means you need to find him as soon as you come into the city uh, because the people will not eat until he comes. So they're all hungry, so he's probably headed that way. Uh, and afterwards, they eat that are invited. So therefore, get you up for about this time. You'll find him. So don't waste any time. Find him quickly or you won't have time to speak with him. He's got a feast to go through, and the only people who can go are those who are invited. And since you're foreigners, uh, I don't think you were invited. So hurry up, guys. So verse 14, they went up into the city, and when they were come into the city, here's this word again, behold, Samuel came out against them for to go up to the high place. This is the fifth time in this chapter the writer says, behold, which means check this out. It's almost like he's a little giddy when he's writing it, you know. He wants us to know that God is orchestrating all these things. Everything that's happening, God is orchestrating how it works out. And so, it says when they went up into the city, when they got inside right to the gates, behold, Samuel, he came out against them, which means that he came toward them so that they kind of met right at the gate. They were coming from one way, he's coming from the other way, and they met right at the entrance to the city. Uh, that in and of itself is an amazing chance, uh, but there's more to it. Uh, look at verse 15. Now the Lord had told Samuel in his ear a day before Saul came, saying, tomorrow about this time, I will send you out a man out of the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be captain over my people Israel, that he may save my people out of the hand of the Philistines, for I have looked upon my people because their cry is come unto me. The Lord revealed to Samuel 24 hours ago that there was going to be a guy coming from the tribe of Benjamin, and he's going to be the next leader of Israel. And I find it interesting, the Lord does not use the word king. I can't know for sure. If you want my opinion, which is worth nothing, I do believe that God had already picked someone to replace Samuel as judge. I think it was probably Saul. And Saul, like other judges that God picked, was started off well, but he was a flawed man, and, and like some of the judges, didn't end so well. Um, however, God's plan, even though he's going to do that, he said he'd give Israel a king. So even though I think God's plan was probably for Saul to be the next judge and David to be the first king, that's my opinion, he's going to give them what they want. But again, I think it's important here to understand that God's plan for a leader was vastly different than Israel's plan. See, like the judges before, God is raising up Saul to deliver Israel from their enemies. He's raising up Saul to deliver Israel from the Philistines. And so the language is very much like he did with Othniel and, you know, and, and, and um, now my Gideon and, you know, and uh, Jephthah and, and uh, Samson and all the other judges. His language, his verbiage is very similar to that and uh, very different than what Israel's looking for. I think that's important because it shows us that even when I reject God's plan for my life, even when God might give me what I want, 
He's never going to deviate from his plans for his people as a whole. He's never going to do that. And, and I love it because, you know, God could have just been like, fine, you don't, want, you don't want me to be your king? Whatever, I'm done. But God is so merciful to them. You know, even though the tribal leaders rejected God's warning about kings, he still hears their cries. He still sees the pain they're going through with this enemy right around the corner. I think that's encouraging to me and to you. Remember this when the enemy is condemning you for your failures and says, God would never listen to you. God would never hear your prayers. God's done with you. God's not working in your life anymore. Remember this. Because Israel's not necessarily in the best place spiritually right now, and God still hears their cries and still wants to rescue them. Amen? He's a good God. Well, Samuel, he doesn't, he, I mean, uh, Saul, he doesn't recognize Samuel. And so even though all this has happened and they bump into each other, verse 17 says, and when Samuel saw Saul, the Lord said unto him, behold, the man whom I spoke to you of, this same shall reign over my people. Verse 18, then Saul drew near to Samuel in the gate and he said, "Uh, tell me, I pray you, uh, where's the seer's house? Talk about a little of an embarrassing moment. And Samuel answered Saul and said, you're looking at him, baby. Maybe not, that doesn't what it says. He says, I am the seer. And then he pauses. I am the seer. Now, the gate is the entrance to the city where they happened to bump into each other. There was no happenstance here at all. This was the Lord's orchestration. But Samuel pauses at this crazy moment where everything aligns, you know? But as, you know, Saul says, you know where the, uh, Saul says, you know where the seer's house is? And Samuel goes, well, I'm the seer. And Saul's kind of like, uh. <laughs> he doesn't say anything. Uh, he's probably a bit dumbfounded at the coincidence, and he's probably a bit embarrassed for not knowing who the man of God was. But Samuel saves him uh, in the moment from, uh, from any embarrassment by taking charge of the situation. And he says, go up before me unto the high place. I want, you, I want you to come with me to the feast. For you shall eat with me today, and tomorrow I will let you go and will tell you all that is in your heart, you know? I mean, this is definitely a, you know, this is a moment where you're like, is this really happening? You know, right? I mean, have you ever had one of those moments in your life? I mean, I've had a few of them, and they're really cool. I wish they'd happened more. But, you know, I've had a few of those moments where you're just like, God, your hand's all over everything that's going on right now. I'm just in awe of what you're doing. Samuel He invites Saul. He says, I want you to go up before me. To go up before him means he would be in the place of honor. That's normally Samuel's spot. So he says, Saul, you're going to be the the person of honor at this feast. And you're going to eat with me. It means you're going to be my honored guest today. You're going to eat with me today. And then tomorrow, you can go ahead and head your way, and I, I will tell you everything that's in your heart. I, I know you've come to me for a reason. You've come to me because you, 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 you need help, and I'll, I'll do all that for you. But first, I want you to go up and be my honored guest. Now, as amazing as this is, Saul has to be thinking, what in the world is going on here? You know? So Samuel reassures Saul by promising to help with his problem before Saul even tells him there's a problem. Despite this, Saul still seems to be hesitant because in verse 20, Samuel has to clarify. And as for your donkeys, and this is, of course, where your jaw hits the ground, you didn't mention any donkeys. And as for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them. Don't worry about them, for they are found. And on whom is all the desire of Israel? Is it not on you and on all your father's house? Now, again, if I was Saul, this is the point where my mouth hits the floor. 
But that's not the fact that he knows he's looking for donkeys. He knows where they are. That's not the most surprising thing Samuel says. He says to him, you're worried about donkeys. Let me give you something to think about. Who's everyone in Israel thinking about? You, my friend. You and your entire family. You're worried about donkeys, but everyone else in the nation is thinking about you. Now, that absolutely baffles Saul, as you can imagine it should. Why would, any, why would everyone, why would anyone be thinking about him? But why would everyone be thinking about him? And so Saul answered and says, am not I a Benjamite of the smallest of the tribes of Israel? The reason they're the smallest of the tribes of Israel is because all the other tribes almost wiped them out. I don't think the nation is, what he's saying is, I don't think the nation is thinking about any Benjamite right now. We're not exactly the most popular people in town. And not only that, he says, my family is the least of all the families of the tribe of Benjamin. We have the lowest status of families and, you know, important families in the tribe of Benjamin. So even if everyone was thinking about a Benjamite, it wouldn't be my family. So he says, why did you speak to me this way? Wherefore speakest thou to me so, or so, so to me? Why, why are you talking like this to me? To what purpose is what that means? Please explain more clearly what you mean. But you know what's interesting? Samuel doesn't explain. Not yet. And what I love about Saul is despite the fact that Samuel gives him no more information, Saul decides to go to the feast with Samuel. You may have heard some people say that faith is taking a blind leap. Faith isn't taking a blind leap because faith is trusting what God says even when you don't understand how it's all going to work out. Faith is taking a leap, but it's into something that is worthy of trust. It's taking a leap into unknown territory. However, it's also taking a leap into the one who knows all the territory. So it's not unknown to him. To have faith, I must first have humility. It would have been very easy for Saul to say, this is crazy. My dad's probably worried already. The donkeys aren't here. I don't have time to be a dinner guest. But instead of looking at it only through his lens, Saul decides that the Lord knows more than he does. And instead of trusting himself and his knowledge, his experience, everything he can pull into the equation, he decides to trust the one who has data he doesn't have. He decides to trust the Lord. And so verse 22, it says, Samuel took Saul and his servant and brought them into the parlor. It's just another fancy name for the, the large chamber where the feast was taking place. And he made them, not just Saul, but Saul and his servants, sit in the chiefest place among them that were invited, bidden, invited. And it says that the people that were invited were about 30 persons. So this is a, a very, you know, select uh, event. Only 30 people in the entire city are invited. The chiefest places, would, the word chiefest actually means highest. Feasts like these, they, were, uh, they had tiered seating so that the guest of honor could be seen wherever you sat, that they could see you. And so these 30 people would be the who's who of the city. And, and, you know, seeing this guy with Saul and his servant with Samuel, they would surely be wondering, who's this guy that's the guest of honor? I didn't know we were having an outsider come in. Who, who is this? Word would spread fast that there's some dude that, you know, Samuel is treating in high honors, you know, word would spread fast. You know, 
And, and Samuel doesn't want to leave any doubt as to how honored Saul and his servant are. So he also does something else. Look at verse 23. And Samuel said unto the cook, hey, uh, bring the portion which I gave you, of which I said to you, set it by you. Uh, apparently, Samuel prepared for this moment when God told him yesterday about Saul. He said, you know, I need to make sure this is an important day that people remember this, how I've treated Saul. And so yesterday he had gone to the cook and he said, listen, there's a special meat. We're going to see in a second, it's the thigh, the special meat. And we don't know what all the other yummy stuff was, but, but he said, he brought all these other things. And he said, this is for my guest of honor tomorrow. Make sure you cook it and put it in a special spot so nobody else takes any of it and then bring it out when I ask for it. And so that's what he does here. He tells the cook. And so the cook took up the shoulder. Uh, the shoulder is the meaty part of the thigh, the really good meat. And, and that which was upon it, it doesn't tell us what the food was. Uh, I'm personally going for kosher cheesecake. <laughs> and he said it before Saul. And uh, Samuel said, behold, that which is left, that which is set aside, it's set before you. Eat it, man. This is your special portion. You're the guest of honor. For unto this time has it been kept for you since I said, I've invited the people. So Saul did eat with Samuel that day. He said, I I spared this portion, set it aside just for you the moment that we scheduled this feast. You know, Saul, I knew you were coming long before you arrived. Let that sink in as you enjoy the meal. And Saul did. Now, before we move on to Samuel and Saul's future interactions here, I do want to point out something about Samuel. Because if anyone was an example of a humble and obedient heart, it's Samuel. We always find him doing exactly what God told him to do. Always. It doesn't mean Samuel was flawless. Samuel was not. There's a couple of times when the Lord has to correct Samuel. But Samuel, when God told him to do something, he never hesitated. Never. He always did what the Lord told him to do, even in the times when it broke his heart. So Samuel is an excellent example of a humble and an obedient heart. Now, verse 25, and when they were come down from the high place into the city, Samuel communed with Saul upon the top of the house. I've always thought that this is one of the most underrated verses in all the Bible because I would love to hear a recording of that conversation. Like, what did they talk about all night? The word there, talked, and, and, the, and the implication is they talked late into the night. They, they communed. It means they talked late into the night, and, and they were on the top of the house. This is still very common in Israeli homes today um, because it can get very hot out there, being it's desert everywhere pretty much. So it was open and cool. The breeze would come off the sea, you know, when on the top of the house. So the, the, the top of the homes were not covered, but they were like a... I don't know what you'd call it, almost like a porch to them. And so that's where they'd go and hang out at the end of the night. Uh, so they're just up there chit-chatting and talking. Again, I have no clue what they talked about. I'd love to know. But I imagine they got to know each other. And when I think about that, I can see why Samuel wept when God rejected Saul later on. Samuel got to know Saul very well not just here, but over the course of his kingship. Samuel wanted Saul to do well. He wanted Saul to follow the Lord to the very end. And it broke his heart when Saul didn't. Now, spending this intimate time with, between Saul and Samuel spending this intimate time with Saul, 
that would also raise Saul in everyone's mind. Who's this guy that Samuel's up on the roof talking to all night long, man? You know, because I'm sure there were some people who were curious. And, and I think the reason that Samuel did this is that when the Lord selected Saul as king soon, then it wouldn't be out of left field. That people go, well, he's been spending time with Saul. It makes sense. Well, verse 26. And so they arose early, and it came to pass about the spring of the day, right as the sun came up, that Samuel called Saul to the top of the house, saying, up, that I may send you away. We've talked enough. It's time to go find your donkeys. That I may send you away. And Saul rose, and they went out, both of them, he and Samuel, abroad outside the house. And as they were going down to the end of the city, just, just as they were about to exit the, the, the gates of the city, um, out of the sight of prying eyes, because Samuel didn't want everyone knowing exactly uh, who Saul would be just yet and what he was about to do. We won't look at it this week. We'll look at that next week. But about what, Saul was about, what Samuel was about to do to Saul uh, in just a moment. He didn't want everybody seeing that just yet. So they get to the edge of, right by the gates, and as they were going down to the end of the city, Samuel said to Saul, hey, uh, bid your servant to pass on before us. Have him go on outside. And so the servant passed on. But I want you to stand here a while that I may show or declare to you the word of God. Hmm. You know, when we talk about having a humble heart, ultimately that's what a humble heart is about, a desire to know what God says, living my faith, my life based on what God says, having a desire to share what God says. Those are all evidences of a humble heart. Why? Because in all of those instances, what I'm doing is I'm showing that I believe God knows better than me. And that is by definition what humility is, that I really believe that God knows better than me, that I trust in His love for me even more than I trust in my own care for myself. You know, we are experts at caring for ourselves. We are constantly worried about ourselves, constantly thinking about ourselves. There is literally no one else out there that cares for us more than ourselves, except the Lord. He truly cares for us more than we could ever fathom and better than we can care for ourselves. Humility, a humble heart says, I believe that, and I trust in that, that you love me, Lord, that you take better care of me than I ever could. Samuel was a man who lived in that kind of humility, and that's what made him such a great leader. Saul starts with this kind of humility, and that's what led him to have the potential to be a great leader, and it's where we need to be as well. Now, as we close here, I'm going to leave you with a couple thoughts. First off, none of this was in Saul's heart. Like, like this was not the plan. You know, it's not like his dad said, go find the donkeys. And, you know, the Saul turned to the servant. He goes, I know we're looking for donkeys, but this is going to turn out with me being king. You watch. This was not in his heart at all. None of this. There was literally not a single event that occurred here that was in Saul's heart. His thought is, I go look for the donkeys. I go find the donkeys. Hammer, nail, right? That's what he's thinking. But all these things, this snowball starts rolling down the hill that, that's going to lead to him eventually becoming king, and that he, he's not a part of it all. All of it originated from God's heart. All of it was orchestrated by the Lord. Saul literally didn't do anything to bring it about. The Lord is the one 
who did that. All Saul did, all he had to do, was listen to good advice and to trust the Lord's word, right? That's all he had to do the whole time. And that's what a good leader does. He lets the Lord lead, and he follows where the Lord goes. <laughs> you know, Lord, you, you lead the way. Oh, you're going that way? All right, there we go. That's what a good leader does. You know, later on, Saul, his mindset changed. He began to think that he knew what was best for himself and what was best for the kingdom. And so even though God had promised to care for him, just in those difficult times, just as God had from the beginning, Saul started to trust what his own eyes could see, what his own mind could fathom instead. And thus Saul began to see plots against him from his closest allies, the people who loved him the most. He began to see that God was against him when God was for him. And he consistently, consistently took matters into his own hands, even when doing so went against God's clear, revealed commands. That is an arrogant heart. That is a proud heart. It's not a humble heart. So let's remember Saul's great start (laughs) and let's stay there. Let's have humble hearts. Amen? Let's all stand. Oh, Lord, we thank you for a wonderful example of Samuel um, who had a humble heart, who was obedient, who just truly followed you all the days of his life. And Lord, we are grateful that you give us this insight into Saul's start. Even though he didn't understand what was going on, even though there were confusing things that you told Samuel to tell him, he still went along with it. He trusted that you had more data than he did, and you were worthy to be trusted more than himself. And so, Lord, we want to do that tonight. We want to be those who say, we will trust in you with all our heart. We won't lean on our own understanding, but we will in all our ways acknowledge you, bring you into account, bring you into the factoring we do. And Lord, when we do that, we choose to bring in the fact that you love us, that you promised you'll take care of all of our needs, that you said you'd never leave us or forsake us, and that you're good. Thank you for being all those things, Lord. And I do pray if there's anyone here tonight that doesn't know you, or maybe even right now they're thinking, I've done things my own way for a long time. I don't even know what to do with it, but it's not working. Lord, for that person, would you show them tonight that you love them, that you died for them on the cross, that you have a better way, and that if they will repent and just trust you, Lord, that you'll rescue them. We thank you that you are a rescuing God, even when, like Israel, we're not where we're supposed to be. So we trust you tonight. We give our hearts to you in Jesus' name. Amen.